Chapter 5 The Work of Grace He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. John 5.11 Just a few observations on the narrative itself. It was a feast day, and Jesus Christ came up to Jerusalem to find opportunities for doing good among the crowds of His countrymen. I can picture the whole city, glad, and the voice of rejoicing in every house, as they kept the high festival, and ate the fat, and drank the sweet wine. Scripture, Then He said unto them, Go, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions unto those who have nothing prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, and not sad. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 But where does Jesus keep the feast? How does He spend His holiday? He walks among the poor, whom He loves so well. We see Him in the hospital. There was one notable Bethesda, or House of Mercy, in Jerusalem. It wasn't enough for the city's abounding sickness, but such as it was, it was greatly prized. There was a pool, which every now and then was stirred by an angel's wing, and worked an occasional cure. Around it, charitable people had built five porches, and there on the cold stone steps a number of blind, lame, and withered folk were lying, each one upon his own wretched pallet, waiting for the moving of the waters. There were the weary children of pain, suffering while others were feasting, racked with pain in the midst of general rejoicing, sighing in the presence of universal singing. Our Lord was at home among this misery, because there was room for His tender heart and powerful hand. His soul feasted by doing good. Let us learn this lesson. In the times of our brightest joys, we should remember the sorrowful and find a still higher joy in doing them good. If we are privileged to experience joy in our day, let us in the same proportion make it joyful to the sick and poor around us. Let us keep the feast by sending portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, so their hunger doesn't bring a curse upon our feasting. When we prosper in business, let us set aside a portion for the poor. When we are full of health and strength, let us remember those to whom these privileges are denied, and aid those who minister to them. Those who visit the sick and care for them like the Lord Jesus will be blessed. As he entered the hospital, our Lord noticed a certain man whose situation was a very sad one. There were many painful cases there, but he singled out this man. It would seem that the reason for his choice was that the poor creature was in the worst condition of all. If misery has a claim on pity, then the greater the sufferer, the more mercy is attracted to him. This poor victim of rheumatism or paralysis had been bound by his infirmity for thirty-eight years. Let's hope there was no worse case in all of Bethesda's porches. Thirty-eight years is more than half the appointed period of human life. One year of pain or paralysis is a wearying length of torture, but think of thirty-eight! We should pity the man who endures the pain of rheumatism even for an hour, but how can we sufficiently pity him who hasn't been free from it for close to forty years? Even if his condition wasn't one of pain but of paralysis, the inability to work and the consequent poverty of so many years were by no means a small evil. So our Lord selects the worst case to be dealt with by His curing hand, as a type of what He often does in the kingdom of grace, 
and as a lesson instructing us to give our first aid to those who are most in need. The man whom Jesus healed was by no means an attractive character. Our Saviour said to him when he was healed, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. From that statement it is not a stretch to think that his first infirmity had come upon him by his sinful lifestyle, or some habit of excess. In some way or other he had done something which brought upon his body the suffering which he was enduring. It is generally considered to be a point beyond all dispute that we should help the worthy, but when a man brings calamity upon himself by wrongdoing, we are justified in letting him suffer, so he may reap what he has sown. This cold, Pharisaic idea is very palatable to minds which are focused on saving their coins. It springs up in many hearts, or rather in places where hearts ought to be, and it is generally regarded as if it were a rule of wisdom which it would be sinful to dispute, an infallible and universal principle. I will venture to say that our Saviour never taught us to confine our giving to the deserving. He would never have bestowed grace on any one of us if He had carried out that rule. If you and I had only received what we deserved from the hand of God, we would have never been in this house of prayer. We cannot afford to mold our charity into a sort of petty justice and spoil our giving by man-made rules. When a man is suffering, let us pity him, however the suffering has come. When a man had been in misery for as long as thirty-eight years, it was time to consider his infirmity more than his iniquity, and to think about his present sorrow more than his former folly. That's how Jesus thought. So he came to the sinner not with reproach but with restoration. He saw his disease rather than his depravity, and gave him pity instead of punishment. Our God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Scripture be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Luke 6.36 Our Lord said, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who speak evil about you, and persecute you, that ye may be sons of your Father who is in the heavens, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5.44-45. Let us imitate Him in this, and wherever there is pain and sorrow, let it be our joy to relieve it. In addition to the assumption that this man had at some time been grossly guilty, it seems pretty clear from the text that he was a poor, lazy, discouraged, lifeless, stupid sort of being. He had never managed to get into the pool, even though others had done so who were just as afflicted as him. He had never been able to win a friend or secure a helper. Considering the extreme length of his infirmity, one would have thought that at some point or another he might have found a man to place him in the pool when the angel gave it the mystic stir. Our Saviour asked him, Dost thou desire to be made whole? This leads us to think that he had fallen into such a listless, despairing, heartsick condition that even though he came daily to the edge of the pool as a matter of habit, he hadn't only ceased to hope, but had also almost ceased to desire. Our Lord touched the cord which was most likely to respond, His will and desire to be made whole. But the response was a very feeble one. His answer shows what a poor creature He was, because there is not a glimmer of hope in it, or even of desire. It is a wail, a hopeless dirge, 
a grievous complaint. I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another steps down before me. However, the utter imbecility and lack of a brain of the poor creature is most seen in the fact that, like a simpleton, he went to Christ's enemies and told them that it was Jesus who had made him whole. I am sure there was no malice in his informing our Lord's enemies. If there had been, he would have said, It was Jesus who commanded me to take up my bed. Instead, he said that it was Jesus who had made him whole. I hardly dare to hope, as some do, that there was much gratitude about this testimony, though I have no doubt that the poor soul was grateful. I believe that his long endurance of pain, acting upon a weak mind, had brought him to an almost imbecilic state of mind, so that he spoke without thought. Therefore, our Lord did not require much of him. He didn't even ask for a distinct declaration of faith from him, but only for that small measure of it which might be implied in his answering the question, Dost thou desire to be made whole? This poor man displayed none of the shrewdness of the man born blind, who answered the Pharisees so intelligently. He was of quite another type, and could do no more than state his own case to Jesus. Thank God, even that was enough for our Lord to work with. The Lord Jesus saves people of all sorts. He has among his disciples men of quick and ready wit, who can baffle their opponents. But just as often, he takes the fool and makes him know the wonders of his dying love, to bring aspiring wisdom low and all its pride reproof. Here he chose this poor simpleton of a creature, and performed a great marvel upon him, to the praise of his heavenly grace. We must also note that this man's mind, though there wasn't much of it, was engrossed and filled up with the fact that he had been made whole. He knew next to nothing about the person of Jesus. He had only seen him for an instant, and he didn't know that it was Jesus. His one idea of Jesus was, He that made me whole. Now, beloved brethren, this was natural in his case, and it will be equally natural in our own. Even when the saved ones are more intelligent than this poor paralytic, they must still first think of the Son of God as their Saviour, as He that made them whole. They may not know much about the Lord, but they do know that He has saved them. They were burdened with guilt and full of misery. They couldn't rest day or night until He gave them peace. They may not be able to tell another much concerning the glory of His person, His attributes, His relationships, His offices, or His work, but they can say, One thing I know, I was blinded by error, but now I see. I was paralyzed by sin, but now I am able to stand upright and walk in his ways. This poor soul knew the Lord through experience, and that's the best way of knowing him. Actual contact with him yields a surer knowledge and a truer knowledge than all the reading in the world. In the kingdom of Christ, wonderful things happen, such as conversion and finding peace with God. Happy are those to whom these things are personal experiences. Great deeds are done by the Lord Jesus when men are turned from the error of their ways and their hearts find rest and peace in Christ. If you are acquainted with these two things, even though you might be ignorant of a great deal else, don't be afraid to emphasize their importance, but set your mind on them and call Jesus by that name, He that made me whole.
Think of him that way, and you will have a very valuable and influential idea of him. You will see greater things than these, but for the present, let these happy and sure facts fill your mind, even as his being made whole filled this man's mind. As for the fault-finding Pharisees, they took no notice of the glorious fact of the man's cure. They willfully ignored what Christ had done, but they pounced on that little insignificant fact that it had been done on the Sabbath day. Then they invested all their thoughts and emotions on that side issue. They make no mention of the man being restored, but they rage because he carried his bed on the Sabbath day. It is much the same with the men of the world today. They habitually ignore the fact of conversion. If they don't deny it, they look at it as being a matter not worth caring about. Even though they see the harlot made pure, the thief made honest, the profane made devout, the despairing made joyful, and other moral and spiritual changes of the utmost practical value, they forget all this and attack some peculiar point of doctrine, mode of speech, or different practice, and raise a storm concerning these. Is it because the facts themselves, if looked at fairly, would establish what they don't want to believe? They persistently forget the fact that Christianity is doing marvels in the world, such as nothing else ever did. But that fact is just what you and I must as persistently remember. We must dwell on what Christ has, by His Holy Spirit, worked within our nature by renewing us in the spirit of our minds. We must make this work of grace our focus which will establish our faith and justify our conduct. This poor man did so. He didn't know much else, but he knew that he had been made whole, and from that fact he justified himself in what he had done. He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. This is the truth I want to expand on. First, by saying that the work of Christ furnishes us with a justification for our obedience to His command, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. That is our complete justification for what we do. In the second place, the work of Jesus Christ places an obligation on us to do what He asks of us. If He that made me whole says to me, Take up thy bed and walk, I am bound to do it, and I should feel the obligation of His goodness pressing upon me. Thirdly, it is not only a justification and an obligation, but the deed of grace also becomes a pressure to obedience. He that said unto me, Rise, and so made me whole, by that same word of power he made me take up my bed and walk. The power which saves us also moves us to obey our Saviour. We don't fulfill the will of our Lord with our own might, but with power which the Healer gives us in that very moment. Therefore you see the drift of our discourse. May the Holy Spirit lead us into the power of this truth, because I am persuaded that a sense of the Lord's work within us is a great force, and should be stimulated and applied to the highest ends. Justification This poor man could not defend the action of taking up his bed and walking, because his enemies were educated in the law and he was not. You and I could defend it very easily, because it seems to us a very proper thing to do under the circumstances. The weight of his bed wasn't much more than a heavy coat. It was a simple rug or mat upon which he was lying. There really was no violation of God's law of the Sabbath, so there was really nothing to excuse. 
But the rabbis laid down rules, of which I will give you but one example. It is unlawful to carry a handkerchief loose in the pocket, but if you pin it to your pocket or tie it round your waist as a girdle, you may carry it anywhere, because it becomes a part of your dress. To my unsophisticated mind, it would have seemed that the pin increased the cumbersome burden and added the weight of the pin, which was more than was necessary. This was quite serious business, according to rabbinical estimates. Most of the rabbinical regulations with regard to the Sabbath were absolutely ludicrous. But this poor man was not in a position to say so, or even to think so, because, like the rest of his countrymen, he stood in awe of the scribes and doctors. These learned Pharisees and priests were too highly regarded for this poor creature to answer them in their own manner. So he did what you and I must always do when we are at all puzzled. He hid behind the Lord Jesus and pleaded, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed. That was quite enough for him, and he quoted it as if he felt that it should be enough for those who questioned him. Truly, it should have been. I may not be able to find in my own knowledge and ability an authority equal to the authority of learned unbelievers, but my personal experience of the power of grace will stand me in as good a position as this man's cure was to him. He argued that there must be enough authority in the man who made him whole to match the greatest rabbi who ever lived. Even his poor, feeble mind could grasp that, and surely you and I have the ability to do the same. We can defend ourselves behind the protection of our Saviour's gracious work and the undeniable authority which belongs to Him. There are certain ordinances which a Christian man is bound to pay attention to, about which the world raises a storm of questions. The world does not take notice that a man was once a drunkard, and has through divine grace become sober, and because of this has become a good father, a good husband, and a good citizen. It lets that miracle pass by unnoticed. But when he is going to be baptized, they immediately object to the ordinance. Or when he plans to join a Christian church, they jeer at him as a Presbyterian or a Methodist. It doesn't really matter what sort of label they give him, as long as he is a better man than them and is redeemed from sin and taught to be upright and pure in the sight of God. The work of grace counts for nothing with them, but they treat the peculiarities of sect or religious rite as a matter of life or death. They are blind creatures to despise the medicine which heals because of the bottle which contains it, or the name on the label. However, our answer is, He that made us whole. He gave us a command, and we will stand by that command. We seek no justification but this, that He who worked a miracle of grace upon us asked us to do it. What if I am about to be baptized as a believer? The same one who said, Believe, also said, Be baptized. He who gave me salvation said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We place the divine authority of Jesus over and against all objections. He by whose blood we are cleansed and by whose spirit we are renewed is Lord and lawgiver to us. His command is our sufficient authority. If we go to the communion table and critics say, What is the use of eating a piece of bread and drinking a drop of wine? Why think so seriously of something so small? We reply, He that made us whole, the same said, Do this in remembrance of me. 
We reject what he has not ordained, but we cling to his statutes. If he had commanded a rite even more trivial, or a ceremony even more open to objection in the eyes of carnal man, we would make no further apology than this. He who has created us anew, given us a hope of heaven, and led us to seek after perfect holiness, has asked us to do it. This is our final reply, and although we could find other justifications, they would be superfluous. Our defense is that the Savior commands it. Doctrines The same apology applies to all the doctrines of the gospel. I say again, ungodly men will not admit, or if they admit it, they ignore it, that the gospel works a marvelous change in men's hearts. If they want proof, we can find them instances by the hundreds and by the thousands of the reclaiming, elevating, and purifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is working spiritual miracles daily, but they forget this and go on to find fault with its peculiar doctrines. They often take issue with justification by faith. Well now, they say, that's a shocking doctrine. If you teach men that they are to be saved by faith alone, and not by their works, of course they will lead loose lives. If you continually declare that salvation is by grace alone, and not by virtue, the inevitable result will be that men will sin, so that grace may abound. We find a complete answer to this lie in the fact that believers in justification by faith, and in the doctrines of grace, are among the best and purest of men, and that, in fact, these truths work holiness, but we do not desire to argue this point. Instead, we prefer to remind our adversaries that He who has caused us to be regenerate men also taught us that whosoever believeth in Him shall be saved. He expressly declared that the one who believes in Him has everlasting life. Scripture, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 By the mouth of His servant Paul, He said that by grace are men saved through faith, and that not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Scripture, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 He has also told us that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And he has commanded us to declare that the just shall live by faith. Galatians 2.16, Hebrews 10.38 He who is daily by his gospel turning men from sin to holiness has given this for the sum total of the gospel we are to preach. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45.22 if this gospel doesn't make men better and change their evil natures, you may question it if you like, and we understand why you would. But as it continues its purifying work, we will not be embarrassed or hesitate to declare the doctrines which are its essence and life. Our regeneration proves to us our Lord's authority, and upon that we are prepared to base our belief. To us, the best of evidence is His work within us. In that evidence we place our absolute faith. Precepts The same applies also to all the precepts which the Christian is called to obey. For instance, if he is true to his colors, he keeps himself separated from all the sinful pleasures, 
practices, and policies of the world in which others take delight. Because of this position, the ungodly world says that he is strange, narrow-minded, and opinionated. This is how the Christian should respond. He that made us whole, the same said to us, You are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. John 17:16. Therefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6:17. If you follow the precepts of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may answer all charges of narrow-mindedness by presenting the supreme authority of the Saviour, whose power has made you a new creature. Where His Word is, there is a power to which we bow at once. It is not ours to question our Saviour, but to obey Him. We are cleansed by His blood, we are redeemed by His death, and we live by His life. Therefore, we are not ashamed to take up His cross and follow Him. This defense should even satisfy those who oppose us, because if they felt as grateful as we do, they would obey also. At any rate, they should say, We can't blame these men for doing as Jesus commands them, because He has done so much for them. Surely the poor man who had been paralyzed for thirty-eight years could not be blamed for obeying the command of one who in a moment restored him to health and strength. If he became his servant for life, who would find fault in him? Who would say that he too easily submitted? Shouldn't such a benefactor exert an unlimited influence over him? What could be more natural and proper? You unconverted people must excuse us if we, in our obedience to our Lord Jesus, do things which to you seem very outside the norm. Although we wouldn't needlessly offend, we cannot please you at the risk of displeasing our Lord. We don't owe as much to you as we owe to Him. We don't owe as much to the whole world as we owe to the Lord Jesus. In fact, to tell the truth, we don't feel that we owe anything to the world. Scripture, for it should suffice us that during the time past of our life we had done the will of the Gentiles. 1 Peter 4 3. When we are asked the question, What fruit came of those things of which you are now ashamed? we have to confess that we had no fruit except the sour grapes which have set our teeth on edge. Like the shipmen who put out to sea against Paul's advice, our only gain has been loss and damage. In serving the world, we found the labor to be weariness and the wages to be death. But as for our Lord Jesus, we owe Him everything. So you must excuse us if we try to follow Him in everything. It seems to us that this is an excuse which you should accept from us as thorough reasoning. But if you refuse it, we are not at all surprised. However, it is quite sufficient for us, and even more than sufficient, it makes us glory in what we do. Does Jesus command it? Then it is ours to obey. Objectors may say His commands are unsuitable to the times, or outdated or unnecessary, but all this is no concern of ours. If Jesus commanded us to do it, His command stands for us in the place of reasoning. He who made us whole gives us sufficient reason for obedience in that very fact. Some might say, Oh, but it's contrary to what the fathers teach and to what the church teaches. We care not the snap of our finger for all the fathers and all the churches under heaven if they go contrary to what our Lord teaches, for they didn't make us whole, and we aren't under obligation to them as we are to Him. 
The authority of Jesus is supreme, because it's from His lips that we received the word which healed the sickness of our sin. This satisfies our conscience now, and it will do so amid the seriousness of death. How can we make a mistake if we follow the words of Jesus in all things? My brethren, we can plead our confidence in His command at the last great day, before the judge of the quick and the dead. What better plea can we have than this? You made us whole, and you asked us to do this. Such a justification of our conduct will make our death pillow soft, and our resurrection bright with joy. Instead of admitting that this isn't an ample justification, let's go further still in the strength of it. If the world considers us vile for obeying our Lord, let us be viler still. Inasmuch as he that made us whole said, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, let us make every effort to spread abroad everywhere the delight of his name, devoting ourselves body, soul, and spirit to the extension of his kingdom. Mark 16:15. He who made us whole will make the world whole, yet by his own wondrous power. Have we not abundantly shown that our Lord's command is a solid justification of our conduct? Obligation. Secondly, the cure brought forth an obligation. He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. First, if he made me whole, he is divine, or he could not do this miracle. Or, to say the very least, he must have divine authorization. If he is divine, or divinely authorized, I must be bound to obey the orders which he issues. Isn't that a plain argument which even the poor, simple mind of the paralytic man was able to grasp and put to use? Let us try and feel the force of that argument ourselves. Jesus, who has saved us, is our God. Shouldn't we obey him? Since he is clothed with divine power and majesty, shouldn't we meticulously make every effort to know his will and attempt to carry it out in every point with passion and zeal? as His Spirit enables us? In addition to His divine character, which the miracle proved and displayed, there was the goodness which shone in the deed of power and touched the poor man's heart. His argument was, I must do what my great Deliverer commands me. How can you think otherwise? Didn't He make me whole? Would you have me, whom He graciously restored, refuse to fulfill His desire? Must I not take up my bed the moment he gives me strength to do it? How can I do otherwise? Is this how I should pay back my good physician at once to refuse to do what he asks of me? Don't you see that I'm under an obligation which it would be shameful to deny? He restores these limbs, and I am bound to do with them what he orders me do with them. He says, Walk, and since these once withered feet have been restored, shall I not walk? He commands me to roll up my bed, and since I couldn't have used my hands until just now, His word gave them life. Shouldn't I use them to roll up the bed at His command? These poor shoulders of mine were bent with weakness, but He has made me stand upright. Since He now asks me to carry my bed, shouldn't I throw the mattress on my shoulders and bear the easy load which He lays upon me? There was no good argument to such reasoning. Whatever might have been the claim of Jesus upon others, 
he clearly had an indisputable right to the loyal obedience of one whom he had made perfectly whole. Follow me briefly in this, brothers and sisters. If you've been saved by the grace of God, your salvation has put you under obligation from that point forward to do what Jesus asks of you. Are you redeemed? Scripture. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom ye have of God, and that ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Have you been blessed by what the Lord has done for you, by rescuing you from satanic slavery and adopting you into the divine family? Then it clearly follows that, because you are sons, you should be obedient to the law of the household. Isn't this a first element of sonship, that you should demonstrate your devotion to the great father of the family? The Lord has been pleased to put away your sin. You are forgiven. But doesn't pardon demand change? Should we go back to the old sins from which we have been cleansed? Should we live in the iniquities from which we have been washed by the blood of our Lord Jesus? That's horrible to even think of. It would be nothing less than wickedness for a man to say, I have been forgiven, and therefore I will sin again. There is no remission where there is no repentance. The guilt of sin remains on that man in whom the love of sin still remains. Let us essentially feel the force of this and follow after purity and righteousness from that point forward. Brothers and sisters, upon whom Christ has performed His great work, you have experienced the love of God. So, if God has loved you in this way, you are bound to love Him in return. If God has loved you, you must also love your fellow man. Doesn't our love of God and love of man spring up as the love of God is poured out in our hearts? Romans 5, 5. Doesn't everyone see the necessity which calls for the one love to follow the other? Love is the mother of obedience, so everything connected with our Lord places us under obligation to obey Him. There is not a single blessing of the covenant that does not entail a corresponding duty. Here I barely like to say duty, because these blessings of the covenant make duty to be our privilege and holiness to be our delight. So, from this point forward, we would no longer live in sin, but having been made heirs of heaven, we devote ourselves to leading a heavenly life. So even while we are here below, our conversation can be in heaven, from where we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, He that made you whole has commanded this to be done by you. Keep the King's commandment. As Mary said to the waiters at the wedding at Cana, so say I to you, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Does he ask you to pray? Then pray without ceasing. Does he ask you to watch as well as pray? Then guard every act and thought and word. Does he ask you to love your brethren? Then love them fervently and with a pure heart. Does he ask you to serve them and humble yourself for his sake? Then do so and become the servant of all. As he said, Be ye holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16, then aim at this by his Holy Spirit. As he said, Be ye therefore perfect, 
even as your Father who is in the heavens is perfect? Matthew 5, 48. Then strive after perfection, because He who made you whole has a right to direct your way, and it will be both your safety and your happiness to submit yourselves to His commands. Constraint Now I call your attention, in the third place, to the text under the sense of constraint. He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. He made him whole by saying, Rise, take up thy bed. The carrying of the bed was part and parcel of the cure. The first part of the healing word was, Rise, but the second was, Take up thy bed. Now, it wasn't an ordinary word which Jesus spoke to that man. It wasn't a mere word of advice, warning, or command, but a word full of power, like that which created light out of darkness. When the Lord said to the poor man, Rise, he meant, Rise. A thrill went through the man. Those stagnant blood vessels felt the life blood stir and flow. Those dormant nerves were aroused to sensations of health, and those withered sinews and muscles braced themselves for energetic action, because omnipotence had visited the impotent man and restored him. It must have been a wondrous joy to his long paralyzed, nerveless, powerless frame to be capable of healthy motion, to be able to bear a happy burden. The joyful man rolled up his bed, threw it on his back, and marched away with the best of them. The bed carrying was part of the cure and proof of the cure. The paralytic man had not been called upon to deliberate as to whether he should rise or not. Jesus said, Rise, and he stood upright. Then he said, Take up thy bed, and the bed was up at once. And according to the last word, Walk, the man walked with delight. It was all done by the power of one thrilling sentence, which did not linger long enough to be questioned, but accomplished the end for which the Lord had sent it. The restored man didn't carry his bed unwillingly, but he did do it out of constraint, because the same power which made him whole made him obedient. Before the divine energy had touched him, he barely seemed to have any will at all. The Lord had to hunt to find a will in him, saying, Wilt thou be made whole? But after his healing, he cheerfully wills obedience to the one who healed him and carried out the Lord's command. Taking up his bed and walking was done by Christ's enabling and by Christ's constraining, and I pray that you may know by experience what this means. What I want your response to be is this I can only obey Christ because by his Holy Spirit he has spoken me into a life which will never die and never be defeated. He has spoken a word in me which has a continuous force over me and thrills me through and through continually. I can no more help seeking to obey Christ than this man could help carrying his bed when the Lord, by a word of power, told him to do so. Brethren, be instructed and warned. Do you feel reluctant to enter into your Lord's service because of conscious weakness? Has the devil tempted you to draw back from obedience because of your unfitness? Do you hesitate? Do you tremble? Surely you need to draw near to the Lord again and hear His voice anew. Take your Bible and let Him speak to you again out of the Word, and may the same thrill which awoke you out of your death sleep 
wake you out of your present lethargy. There is a need for the living Word of God to come home to your inmost soul again, with that same miraculous power which dwelt in it at first. Lord, quicken thou me, is David's prayer, but it suits me every day, and I think most of God's people would do well to use it daily. Lord, speak life into me now as you did at first. Speak power, speak spiritual force into me. The charity of the Christ constrains us, says the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.14. This constraint is what we want to feel more and more. We need divine life to carry us forward to acts of obedience. We don't want to destroy willingness, but we desire to have it stimulated into entire subservience to the will of the Lord. Like Noah's ark on dry land, the will keeps its place by its own dead weight. Oh, for a flood of grace to move, to lift, to carry it away by a mighty current! We would be carried before the love of Christ as a tiny piece of wood is drifted by the Gulf Stream, or as one of the specks which dance in the sunbeam would be carried by a rushing wind. As the impulse which began with Jesus found the poor man passive, and then impelled him on to active movements as with a rush of power, so may it always be with us throughout life. May we forever yield to the divine impulse. To be passive in the Lord's hands is a good desire, but to be what I would call actively passive, cheerfully submissive, and willing to give up our will, this is a higher spiritual state of mind. We must live, and yet not we, but Christ in us. We must act, and yet we must say, He that made me whole commanded me to do this holy deed, and I do it because His power moves me to do so. If I have done well, I lay the honor at His feet. If I hope to do well in the future, it is because I hope for strength from Him to do well, and believe that He will work in me by that same power which converted me in the first place. Beloved, make every effort to dwell under this influence. May the Holy Spirit bring you there. My last word is a practical lesson. The Church of God on earth at this present time anxiously desires to spread her influence over the world. For Christ's sake, we wish to have the truths we preach acknowledged, and the precepts which we deliver obeyed. But no church will ever have power over the masses of this or any other land except in proportion as she does them good. The day has long since passed in which any church can hope to succeed on the plea of history. Look at what we were is a vain appeal. Men only care about what we are. The sect which glorifies itself with the faded laurels of past centuries and is content to be inactive today is near its inglorious end. In the race of usefulness, men nowadays care less about the pedigree of the horse and more about the rate at which it can run. The history of a congregation or a sect is of little value compared to the practical good which it is doing. Now, if any church under heaven can show that it is making men honest, temperate, pure, moral, holy, that it is seeking out the ignorant and instructing them, that it is seeking out the fallen and reclaiming them, that in fact it is turning moral waste into gardens and taking the weeds and briars of the wilderness and transforming them into precious fruit-bearing trees, then the world will be ready to hear its claims and consider them. 
If a church cannot prove its usefulness, the source of its moral strength will have gone, and something even worse than this will have happened, because its spiritual strength will have gone too. It is clear that a barren church is without the fruitful Spirit of God. Brethren, you may, if you want, dignify your minister by the name of bishop, and give your deacons and elders grand official titles. You may call your place of worship a cathedral, and you may worship, if you desire, with all the grandeur of pompous ceremony and the adornments of music, incense, and the like, but you will only have the resemblance of power over human minds, unless you have something more than these things. But if you have a church, it doesn't matter by what name it's called, that is devout, holy, living unto God, doing good in its neighborhood, spreading holiness and righteousness by the lives of its members, and that is really making the world whole in the name of Jesus, then you'll find that even the most carnal and thoughtless will eventually say, The church which is doing this much good is worthy of respect. So, let's hear what it has to say. Living usefulness will not screen us from persecution, but it will save us from contempt. A holy church goes with authority to the world in the name of Jesus Christ its Lord, and the Holy Spirit uses this force to bring human hearts into subjection to the truth. Oh, if only the church of God would believe in Jesus' power to heal sick souls! Remember that this man, thirty-eight years sick, had been ill longer than Christ had lived on earth. He had been afflicted seven years before Christ was born. In the same way, this poor world has been afflicted for a very long time. Years before Pentecost, or the birth of the present visible church, the poor, sinful world lay at the pool and could not stir. We must not be hopeless about it, because the Lord is still going to cast sin out of it. Let us go, in Jesus Christ's name, and proclaim the everlasting gospel, and say, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk, and it will be done. God will be glorified, and we will be blessed.